Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to the writer Quee Gwynn. Off-Broadway audiences will know him for plays including Viet Gone, seen at Manhattan Theater Club in 2016, and his upcoming production there, Poor Yellow Rednecks. But longtime New York theater goers will know that his roots lie farther downtown with his award-winning Vampire Cowboys Theater Company, the creator of gleefully genre-bending, geek-friendly theater like She Kills Monsters, Fight Girl Battle World, Alice in Slasherland, and The Inexplicable Redemption of Agent G. The troupe has been mixing theater with geek culture long before Game of Thrones conquered HBO, Marvel reigned at the box office, or Harry Potter and the Cursed Child brought fantasy to Broadway. In news that might make the company's fans feel old, Vampire Cowboys marks its 20th anniversary this year, and to celebrate, the troupe is back with its latest production of a new play by Gwyn, Revenge Song, which started performances February 4th at the Geffen Playhouse in L.A. Gwyn is in L.A. working on the show, but he's calling into the studio to talk with me about stage fights, Comic-Con, and stealth diversity. Hey, Gwyn. Thanks for joining me. Hey, how you doing, man? Um, so Vampire Cowboys is 20 years old. How did that happen? Uh, purely by accident. (laughs) (laughs) Like, to be quite honest, like, I had no idea that we were around this long until, uh, at some point Robert was like, hey, 2020, we started 2000. And Robert is, for people who don't know, so, um... Is my, uh, yeah, he's the director of all my plays. He's the co-artist director of Vampire Cowboys, yeah. Right. Um, and was that... Was that realization part of what prompted uh, the show you've got going on now? Oh no! Like I, it, it, it kind of came about. Um, uh, to be quite honest, and if any of the other theaters that have commissioned me are listening, they'll probably get mad. But uh, basically, I had a string of commissions uh, from all these different theaters, and uh, the Geffen was like, "Oh, um, you know, I met Matt, and he was like, oh, mm-hmm. what." What is, what is the thing that you're most passionate about? What is the thing that you really, really want to do next? And at that point, I had done a show with Vampire Cowboys in like three or four years. It wasn't mm-hmm. that long, but mm-hmm. it, it, was, it was longer than usual considering we used to do a show per year every yeah, year. Yeah, right. And I was just like, man, I, I would just like to be with my company again. I want to be with the artists that I've climbed the mountain with, the guys that 
that, that have shaped me as artists, those are the people I want to work with. He's like, well, let's make it happen. Right. And of course, like right. as soon as you do that, uh, instead of having like just one or two people from a theater going, checking in, going, oh, how's that commission going? How's that play going? I have an entire company and a director and my wife who's a producer just all on me going hey are you gonna make the thing in which we get to all hang out and make a show and party again and I'm like I, I guess I have to write it yeah. so that that's kind of what prompted me and pushed me it, it's it's uh, it, it was massive peer pressure yeah. <laughs> and for people who aren't maybe aren't familiar with vampire cowboy shows that explain the the aesthetic and sort of what the what describe characterize uh, the kind of theater you're making it's 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 um on the surface, it's just like um, – it's be- basically a big theater smorgasbord. Mm. Uh, we do you know, stage combat and puppetry and multimedia and uh, all sorts of tricks. Uh, we're you know, extremely anachronistic and incongruent uh, purposely. Right. Uh, but, it, but the heartbeat of it all is uh, – for me, uh, when I started the company, was to create superheroes for people who don't get to see themselves depicted that way mm. uh, regularly on screen or on stage. And so – you know, like 20 years ago, we kind of hid the fact that we were a, a company of diversity. Uh, we, 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 you know, we were like, oh, we're not going to push that because I think as soon as – Yeah, because we why? Knew that, you know, well, as soon as we pushed it, I think we were afraid that people would think we were medicine. You know, mm-hmm. and no one wants medicine, right? They're like, oh, they're trying to, you know, create, you know, things that, that feel – I don't know. Uh, all the baggage that people get when they think of theaters that that that's pro- that's mission is that mm. and so for us i was like well then we'll make superheroes that's gonna be the the heartbeat of what uh we'll do um and they just won't know that all our superheroes are lgbtqia poc and right. female they just won't know that that'll just be part of the mixture but that was that was it we were just making action adventure shows that kind of um challenged what you kind of thought a superhero should look like right right and what is the craziest thing that you had to figure out how to stage uh for this show that you're doing right now because i feel like in all your shows you're doing there's always at least one sequence or multiple sequences where you have to slay a dragon or whatever right we we definitely decided that uh we were going to use the marvel model of making this 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 play happen i'll uh uh, going, oh, in every MCU movie, uh, you have, like, basically the last 20 minutes is just a fight. It's a 20-minute giant action sequence. And the advantage in film uh, is you have camera angles and music swelling, and uh, when things are exploding, strangely, when people talk, you can still hear them. <laughs> you know, uh, in theater, you don't get the same uh, flexibility. So you have to find different ways to do that, but it was definitely like, oh, how do we kind of create that same feel? How do we make that giant theatrical swell? Uh, so for the last, so the challenge was for the last 20 minutes, right. like let the dialogue drop out and allow it to be a big MCU ending. You know? Right. And is there, is there, I know there are puppets involved in the production, but are there, is there like, how did, how did you achieve that last 20 minutes that you're talking about? What were those? Uh, well, it, it's, it's, th- it's basically three giant sequences. Mm. So the first sequence is a live feed where, uh, we're putting a camera on stage and there's like basically a screen on top of mm. the, the stage where you get to see what's in the lens. And that's what you are prepared. That's what you're supposed to see what's inside the lens. But on stage, we're using a lot of puppetry and miniatures and, and, and basically moving cardboard pieces to create shots 
that are like big action sequences of a woman uh, basically fighting things and, and sneaking into a big, uh, you know, uh, maximum security uh, type of building. Uh, it's really fun. Because, uh, you know, it's like things like, you you know, you can turn the camera sideways and she can, like, climb up the wall, like, on the ground. It looks like she's climbing up a wall. Oh, right. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like that. Yeah. So we're doing those tricks. And then that slides into what I call, like, the big traditional fight. Like, it's a big, you know, we have, like, uh, this incredible, one of our actors is an incredible, like, acrobat fighter. And so we kind of, like, center a huge, like, what we can, our, is like our Darth Vader fight mm. there. And then we have, like, once we get done with that giant fight movement, then we move into like a giant theatrical fight movement where I'm, I'm doing a big trick there. Right. So okay. Um, we haven't talked yet about uh, what the show's about. I've read it, but um, obviously haven't had a chance to see it yet because it's not up yet. So um, t- tell us about what it's, what it's about and what inspired it. Uh, it's about uh, a real life person uh, named Julie Daboni. Uh, she was a 17th century uh, queer sword fighter duelist slash opera singer. How did you find uh, out about her? She, well, Vampire Cowboys for the longest time, I I refused to do anything based on anything. Like I, yeah. I we did. Is everything this the first time was, actually that you that you Vampire Cowboys is doing something based on something? Yeah, is to have material based on something other than just stuff coming out of my head. And mm-hmm. usually, basically, when we were just a couple that did a show every year. We would, as soon as the show closed in the spring, I would then like send out the social media to our, our, our fans, like, what should we do next? And they would tell us, like, oh, you should make a sci-fi show or you should make a kung fu show or whatever. And that would be kind of like whatever was the biggest swell would be the next thing. And the one thing that kept popping up in my feed from, like, people who followed our company was Julie Damoni. It was the constant, like, you should do a show about her. You should do a show about her. You should do a show about her because she's a big kind of – you know, we have we, we have a lot of queer fans and we have a lot of fight nerd fans and, and and it was kind of like the the perfect like you know Venn diagram moment of like these are two things that uh, this is one thing that both corners really like but I was very much like I don't do I don't tell other people's stories and then I did a play called Vit Gone which was about my mom and dad right and so I told someone else's story I told my parents' story. And I employed all my vampire cowboy techniques on it, and it's done very well. And I then thought, well, well, if I want to do that with my parents' story, what would happen if I did it with a story that wasn't someone I was related to? Mm. Could it be equally successful? Um, and so when Matt brought up the idea of commissioning me for the Geffen, I was like, oh, this seems like the right, you know, the prime time to to do that, the time to try. To, to try to push what I do as an artist. Uh, and so I was like, oh, it's, it's time to do this a play about this person that has been in my face for, you know, for 20 years, apparently. And so I, I finally read, out, read up on her, and I was like, holy crap, she has a very interesting life. Like, the, when people see the show, I think the craziest shit that's on that stage is going to be the things they assume are the stuff we made up when that is not what we made up. Like, all we did was makes superhero fights and we made him her speak like someone from 2020 but basically the story of her you know you know falling in love and you know grave robbing and burning down churches and uh beating up you know opera singers and uh running away from the law and stuff like that that's that was all her and and what i find interesting about her is unlike you know most people you read about from that era there's no real in all honesty, there's nothing really important about it. 
you know, on the surface. She's not, you know, she's not a noble or royal. She wasn't in the politics. She wasn't part of a war. The only reason why we know about her is because she broke a lot of rules. You know, she broke what expectations of what people expected from a woman at that time. Uh, and that's what I found fascinating about her. She was special because she was a rule breaker. And, and that felt very, that was something that I felt a kindred spirit to. My company felt a kindred spirit to. Uh, and it was definitely immediately like, oh, this is a story we have to tell. Do you have a sense of why, why in particular the story resonates right now as opposed to if you'd done this 10 years ago? Like, what, what do you feel like the, um, her story is really speaking to right now for us? Uh, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't, I, I, I really rarely consider that type mm. of stuff, like how the stories I'm telling uh, matter in the moment, because I guess I'm like a lot of writers who go, oh, hopefully it's a timeless story. Right. Uh, but I mean, it is a, a story about identity. It's about gender politics. Uh, it's about, uh, you know, about the difference between like gender queer, like, you know, gender identity versus sexual identity, things like that, I think, are part, obviously part of the conversation uh, right now. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, it's it's just a fun story about hopefully, as we depict it correctly, a story that adds yet another uh, queer superhero to the world. You know? Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned Viet Cong, and you've got what is what I understand to be the second play in that trilogy, right? Also based on your sort of family history, poor Yellow Rednecks oh, yeah, coming yeah. up. Um, yeah, that's at MTC this uh, the May. I think in the maybe. right, exactly. Yeah. When Viet Cong first came out, and I, people like me who had sort of known all your vampire cowboy work, it seemed um, a little more reserved and a little more uptown off Broadway as opposed to downtown. <laughs> Did were were people worried that you'd turned respectable? Uh, I was well, I was afraid I turned respectable. <laughs> or the funny thing is, I, I always referred to Viet Cong as vampire cowboy light. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like mm -hmm. oh, it, it's like the starter hors d'oeuvre to 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 really who I am as an artist. Because it's like it's all the stuff that I do, but it's you know it, it doesn't. I, I I you know it's definitely pulled back. Right. Uh, whereas uh, whereas uh, Julia's full on vampire cowboys, which I'm I'm having a lot of fun seeing and watching people put together. Um, but the, for for that story, it was it, it was really like you know, like the when, when I wrote it, I actually wrote it for vampire cowboys. Like because oh. South Coast Rep commissioned it. And uh, it was a story that I had always wanted to tell, a story about my parents. And I always thought that I would have to grow super old and, you know, become like a totally different writer to be able to write. I'm like, when I, when I become a respectable writer, then I'll write it and I will understand how to tell this story properly. And as my parents got older and I had kids, I, I, I very much sat down and was like, I'm, I'm just the writer I am. So let me just write this the way I know how to write it. So thusly, no one will want to produce it except for my And so uh, that's what I'll do. I'll just write a play for my company using the money that – and I was actually surprised that they wanted to do it after you know, it was done. Because it, 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 it still – though I think it's Vampire Cowboy Light, it still seems to be – because of the language and the way it's done, often the thing that's a sore thumb out of most people's programs, <laughs> you know, actual theater programs. Uh, I don't necessarily fit all the other shows in most seasons. Right. I'll have more with Quee right after the break. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now here's more from Vampire Cowboys, Queequin. You mentioned earlier you were talking about um, the fans that you would talk to to help sort of guide where the where the company went um, went next. Where, how did you? When did you start to accumulate those fans, and how did you then go about kind of nourishing them and kind of keeping that fan well, that, sustaining that, that fan base? Definitely from uh, solely. From, I always credit my my wife at that time was just my producer and my girlfriend at that time. Yeah. Like of Ben Park, I was Abby Marcus because when we started, Robert myself, we found her by accident because we produced our very very first show twenty years ago called Saint Glass Ugly at this. Theater Festival of the Manhattan the, uh, Mid... Oh, the Mid-Manhattan Midtown. Theater Festival? Yeah. That was our first thing. And it was... Uh, we had put it together. It was the first thing we had done out of grad school. Where, which was where? Grad school? Which was Ohio University. Right. Is where we went. Yep. And, uh, and we had produced the show. We thought it was pretty good. And we had zero audience members. Because the one element that we forgot to do was advertise or tell anyone about the show. Because... The last show we had done was in grad school where students just showed up. You, right. know, you do a show, people showed up, and we didn't know we had to actually tell people. And the only reason why Abby showed up was because I rented a rehearsal hall from her. I thought she was cute, and uh, then I bumped into her down the street from where I live, which was complete happenstance. I was like, hey, do you want to see my show? She's like, oh, you do theater? Yeah, I would love to see it. And then she came to see it. And it was her and uh, Rudyard Martin Denton that were the only people in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> right. She, she afterwards, she was like, hey, you're actually a really interesting artist. You're a shitty producer. Um, but that's what I'm starting to do at school. So I would love to take it over and, and, and figure out a way to get you an audience. And I was like, uh, okay, you know, young, cute girl that I just met. What, like, what do you know about theater? And she knew a lot. Uh, and, and and the thing that she did was she sat us down and, and asked uh, us, like, what kind of art we wanted to make uh, with a company called Vampire Cowboys. And I told her all about it, and she was like, oh, you're like geeks. I was like, hmm, that's not a nice thing to call me. <laughs> like, before, that was a, a, a term of endearment, uh, you know? Right. And, uh, and she's like, no, but technically that's what you do. The things you want to do. You're kind of a geek theater company. That's what we'll call you. And I was like, mm, you can't call it a geek theater company because people will confuse it for Greek, and we're not Greek. <laughs> like, like people are going to know it's geek. Okay, like I'm good at what I do. Right. Just shut up and listen to me. And then the next thing that she did was she's like, well, doing what you want to do, you're never going to compete. Like you know, she gave me this like, weird because she's like a theater person who likes statistics, and she's like, here's a statistic chart. Mm. Like you know, if a regular theater person sees eight shows a year, they tend to be like. You know, a person who has like a, subscri- a subscription and you know, blah blah blah, and so they'll they'll have like six shows already reserved, and then the half of it, they have one other show per week that they'll or per month they're willing to see. Are they really going to see you versus something at like Lincoln Center? And like, okay, so that's going to be weird. And her theory was somewhere else, and so there was a startup, which sounds silly now, New York Comic Con that was just. <laughs> 
I've heard uh, of it. Yeah. <laughs> at that time, it was very, very small. It was year one of it. And she was like, what I would like to do is I would like to spend my own money and make, put a Vampire Cowboys booth there. And that's where we're going to find our fans. I was like, that sounds crazy. Oh, because it was 2000 bucks to do it. Right. Uh, so she got a booth there. And that same year, uh, she was like, she looked over and there was this little stage there that was completely empty. And so she just went up to the organizer because it was small. Mm. I was like, hey, what was that stage for? I was like, well, you know, that's for like our speakers and things. We don't have a lot of them because we're very new. And she's like, well, um, so that's Formon. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. And so she called me up and was like, hey, call up all our actors' friends. We're going to put them in cute, like, Hollywood adventure costumes, choreograph fights. <laughs> we're just making people to look at us. Mm. And so that's what we did. And that kind of drew in our first like group of fans who kind of came up and were like, what are you? We're a theater company. They came to see our first show. And geeks, unlike uh, like a regular theater you know, person, I would say, um, has two, two things that they do. One, because they come from a cinema culture. The most important time to see a show isn't later in the run. It's to see the very first run. So we ended up selling out previews or we sold out right away because – geeks see it at top and then once they realize theater unlike film there is no second you know that you can't buy it on dvd the only way to to obtain the thing that you want is to see it again and again so then when they realized that we we were a thing they would come and see that first show the very first performance and then buy tickets for every following weekend so bring their friends and things like that so we would sell out literally in a day or two for our entire runs and we just did that for years and years and you just collect a lot of fans they brought more people we were in bigger theaters uh we had longer runs and you just accumulate like and in terms of what i do now in comparison to then it's still very modest like we have a couple of thousand fans i would say but uh but that was enough to sustain a company mm. for you know for for when we were in new york 15 years without really having to depend on a lot of other money you know yeah and you are based in LA now. I'm talking to you in LA. I'm based. Um, yeah. And so, and when did you, when did you move there, and what sort of prompted that move, and how did your thinking about uh, Vampire Cowboys and its activities sort of figure into all of that? Uh, well, I mean, like I, I moved out here for kind of the reasons that a lot of people moved out out of here. It was uh, I, I have kids, um, and I wanted to see if maybe TV film was a more natural fit to my writing style did it feel like the rise of kind of geek culture over the years of vampire cowboys that we were talking about that that might seem hollywood would be a little more receptive to the kind of stuff that you write the first time i was i ever even looked at tv was um around i think i guess it was like 11 years ago when i first was like i got interested in the notion of coming out here and at that time scott pilgrim was out and i thought Mm -hmm. oh this is a good sign i write very much like Edgar Wright, that's a very yeah, right. a style yeah. I really really enjoy. But Scott Pilgrim bombed. It sure did. And at that same summer, uh, that that movie with Sylvester Stallone and all the old action heroes exploded. And basically, and this is before you know streaming. So basically, everyone pulled back from doing really high concept shows. And as soon as I got out here, everyone was like, "Oh, do you have like a low concept idea?" I was like, "What's a low concept?" I was like, "You know, like two stop boys hanging out in the back of a Walmart." And that's like the premise of the show. I was like, "I don't write that." And so I immediately ran away from uh, from the West Coast because like, "Oh, I don't write that way. I'm not gonna ever write you. Everyone loves Raymond or uh, Friends. That's just not how I'm built. I'm funny, but that's not what, I, what I'm interested in." 
And then, of course, like we, as we all saw what happened to television, it became a different medium. It became a much bigger thing. Uh, uh, serialized stories are now the thing. That's the, that I think that's why I think playwrights do so well. We, we tend to think of character-driven stories, and we love telling stories, like given the opportunity uh, for the 22 episodes is always fun or 10 episodes or whatever. Um, and so it just it became a thing that just fit me. Like at some point – you know, what Hollywood wanted and what I was interested in just merged naturally. And, and my manager very much was like, oh, this is your time. This is the moment to come out here. Give it a try. And what do you, you mentioned uh, you're working on another project at the same time as Revenge Song uh, in L.A. Tell us, uh, tell us about it. Uh, I can't. Uh, alas. <laughs> I, I, I work for the Walt Disney Animation Company. And um, it, it, it's, it's, it's coming out. Uh, in the future, but <laughs> nearish future, and it, maybe I'll be able to talk about it soon, but not right now. And you have also worked on on the show The Circle uh, at Netflix, yeah? Uh, society, yeah, yeah. Society, excuse me. Um, yeah, all right, The Circle being their their new show that, uh, that people are talking about, totally different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and is is there a season two of Society coming? Yeah, there's a season two, and that should be out. I, th- I think they, they, you know, they start filming this spring, and so it should be out maybe summer, fall, right. soon. It's a, it's an incredible cast, and the team of writers on it are some of the best writers I've ever gotten to work with. They're, they're incredible, the incredible team. What has your work in other genres allowed you to do, in other media, allowed you to do that you haven't been able to do on stage? Um. I, not, not not that I ever listened to artistic directors before, but uh, I I think that because I don't I'll be I'll just be frank about it, because I don't ha- I don't make my money doing theater anymore. It's, it it allows me to have the freedom to kind of be really true to who I am as an artist. Like I don't feel like oh if you don't want to do it my life's over. I'm like if you don't want to do my show you don't have, you don't have to do my do my show. I'll do it somewhere else. If you don't. If you want it to be something else, I don't really need to change it because you can just not do it. And so I think it's put me on like an even playing ground where I think before I think um, I would have been more open to it, not necessarily because I agreed with with that that you know input that I didn't agree with, but because I wanted to keep being paid, you know. And now because it's not that element isn't there, it's allowed me to really. And it's not that I'm not collaborative. I'm usually collaborative. But if it's a note I disagree with, I don't – now I'm not shy to go, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. Or I'll give you the reason why, but uh, but I, it, it, I'm not shy about um, what I think is important to the work that I'm doing. You know? Right. And what is it – you've sort of answered this tangentially already, but what is it that stage allows you to do that uh, you find yourself unable to do in film and TV? Oh, well, I mean like – uh, you know, I, 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 the stage is still really immediate for me, right? Like, unlike film and TV, which, which what, I, what I love about that is the reach that I get. Uh, I'm like, oh, just the amount of people who get to see my work through that is satisfying. But it is through the filter of producers and studios and things like that. Whereas theater, it's still me. It's still pure. It's it's still way closer to what I envisioned. Um, the, the, there's immediacy to it. I'm also allowed to be a lot more mischievous. I can swear a lot more. I don't have to worry about like if you swear that much, we're suddenly PG-13. Swear that much, we're suddenly R. Like I don't have to worry about any of those things. Um, I get to I, I get to 
you know, I always go like the budget in a film to be good is in dollars, right? Like if I'm doing a big sci-fi movie, a big you know superhero flick, it kind of does require two hundred million dollars to be made. Otherwise, it just looks cheap and it doesn't feel good. Whereas the, I would say the medium theater is the imagination. So I don't necessarily like Vampire Cowboys was doing these big big shows on like a shoestring budget, you know, and people loved it and had just as much fun. And that's because I was, you know, I, I was dealing with like, oh, their brains could fill in the blanks that I didn't, you know, that I couldn't with my money. And so it's fun. Like, I mean, I think at the Geffen we have a little bit more money, but I think we're trying to stick to uh, doing a lot of stage tricks that still require uh, the audience to fill in the blank in a fun way. Just like uh, the new musical Square Bob's, SpongeBob SquarePants oh, right. did, did a similar trick where it could have come out in like big cartoony costumes. They still used a lot of stage uh, craft and a lot of theatrics, um, and which made it super enjoyable. It surprised me. So. And is do you imagine bringing Revenge Song to New York sometime? Well, that's the goal. That's the goal. Like we haven't had a chance to talk to a lot of people yet because I, because of my schedule. But uh, I, I definitely think that you know Abby, being a very good producer, is already in conversations. Uh, but uh, but you know I I would love to have those conversations. I just I'm 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 not able to right now. Yeah. Do you think if you were looking at how what the theater industry is sort of like right now, do you feel like it would be harder or easier to start Vampire Cowboys now than it was 20 years ago? Ooh, I mean, uh, it's things are so much more expensive now, to be quite, quite honest. Like, yeah. I, I think about the spaces available in downtown New York. I think about, like, the rehearsal spaces. that Like, the reason I was, uh, you know, it was important to us that, like, when we, uh, when we were in New York, uh, a huge reason why we were able to just be able to develop was the fact that we found really, really cheap but good rehearsal spaces that were big enough to accommodate big fight shows. Because uh, you can't go into a small room if you're going to swing swords around or swing a battle axe around. You need a really big space. And at that time, there was a space called Studio 111. There was this huge space that was only $10 an hour. And then when we took it over as Vampire Cowboys, we kept it. Ten dollars an hour because we knew it was very, very important to allow artists to have a place to incubate their ideas in a large, large arena for very little money. Uh, I don't know the spaces that exist there. Like because the times when we would do shows post giving up the studio, uh, it was like, oh, this is a space we have. It's not very much room, and we're paying a lot more money for it. And that that that's you know that seems like a small problem. This is a small one. Then we just talk about you know uh, theater theater spaces to rent from it not that we wouldn't have found a way to do it if we were to start today but i think it would have been a, the, there there is a little more complex uh the one good the, the good and bad too about when we came out social media was very still was still very new and so when we were using platforms like myspace and facebook uh, and friendster uh to advertise our shows there wasn't a lot of competition for for eyeballs and now, like, social media is such a thing that, like, you, me, me posting about my show disappears, like, instantaneously. It's almost as if I didn't need to, you know, why bother doing it at all? And so it's just like, oh, it's the tricks that we had to get attention, to get eyeballs on it is different then. And that blog culture was still a big thing in theater then. People read a lot of blogs. Everyone's in podcasts now. Right. Uh, I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> so, 
so 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 we would have found a way. We would have just been a company that started and using the the the, the tools of twenty twenty. But you know, I will say the tools of two thousand two thousand one were a lot easier to figure out for my old brain. <laughs> and so, when a young writer asks you for advice as they're just starting out, what do you what do you tell them? What do you what's what's the thing that you feel like uh, is really important as you're as you're a young artist starting to make your way? Yeah, I always, I always try. I, I I say this over and over again. Anytime I talk to a young writer, write the thing that you want to see. And when I say that, I don't mean the thing you just want to see because you want a job. I mean the thing that you want to see and you're going to see for at least 80 times in a row. You know, because that's you're going to be in rehearsal every day. You're going to see it a whole bunch. You want a second production. You're going to see it again. And so you're going to see it a lot. And if it's if you're doing it because it's something you think a theater wants to do or it feels like the right story to be told at this never going to be a thing because you're never going to invest it the same way as a thing that you actually as a fan want to see you know you you're making a thing you're like oh there's something in my mind that doesn't exist in any medium and that's a story i just you know like we're doing like a punk rock 17th century you know superhero show about julie davoni it doesn't exist there's nowhere else that exists this version of this thing and for me, it was very, very important to see this version of this story. And that's why I would invest you know, all this time into writing it, to making it. Uh, and I think that that's important that young artists, because I think they sometimes forget that part. They, they write what's important to them. Absolutely. They write the story. They, they spend a lot of time trying to figure out the story. But they can, only they can tell, which is very, very crucial. I think that's the heartbeat of telling uh, any good story from anybody. But then they forget about the entertainment value. The one where they're like, oh, am I really going to watch this every night and giggle and have a smile on my face and cry at the points where I need to cry? They, they sometimes forget that. I think that that's the other missing ingredient. And that's the ingredient that actually honestly just sells to, to any medium because that's the passion that allows you to pitch it. You know? yeah, yeah. I think that's a great place to wrap up, actually. Um, thanks, Quee. Thanks for joining me. Nice to talk to you. That was Quee Gwynn the co-artistic director and co-founder of Vampire Cowboys Theatre Company, and the writer of Revenge Song, now playing at the Geffen Playhouse in L.A. In New York, he's got Poor Yellow Rednecks coming to MTC's off-Broadway space later in the spring. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of StageCraft, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there or on Spotify or on the Broadway Podcast Network or anywhere else that finer podcasts are dispensed. If you've got feedback, you can find me on Twitter at GCoxVariety. Next week, I'm talking to Ruth Nega, the Oscar-nominated actress currently reprising her acclaimed performance as Hamlet at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn. Until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.